Welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jake Hill. And this week we're going to talk about our month's book club book, which is Moon Knight, uh, written by Jeff Lemire and um, drawn primarily by Greg Smallwood with uh, colors by Jordi Belair. Um, but there's a bunch of other artists, and we're going to talk about them too, and that's really exciting. This is just the intro, and I'm getting a little out of hand. Corey Petit lettered. Excelsior. Indeed. Sorry, I got really carried away. Because one of the things that's so cool about this book is the way it uses the different artists. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah. This this was a run that came out uh, in 2016. It ran for 14 issues. It was just one year, or a little over. But it has captured my heart uh, for Moon Knight. And this was kind of why I fell into really liking the character. I didn't really know much about him beforehand. Uh, but... I think mm-hmm. one thing we should make clear to the listeners, dear listeners, is that um, I think probably I've been reading, like, as an adult, I've been into superhero comics longer than you have as an adult, right? Is that yeah, probably, probably safe to say? Just, like, more years. I've had, I have, like, more mileage. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our book club books are things that I've read that I'm enthusiastic about, um, but you have not. Yes. Um, but this month, we deliberately thought it would be cool to reverse that dynamic, so we picked something that Elias had read and was very enthusiastic about, and I had just missed. I think I read an issue or two when this was coming out, and I thought they were pretty cool. Oh, how you were wrong. Yeah, well, I thought they were pretty cool at the time, and I was like, I should definitely read this when it's in trade, and I guess I never got around to it, because there's so many books I feel that way about, it, and this is just one of those things that happens. And holy shit, Elias, this is like my favorite comic. <laughs> Good. Good. This is amazing. I think this is hands down. I have to start looking, but this is probably my favorite Jeff Lemire book he ever did at Marvel. I like a lot of his DC work a lot, and I like a lot of his indie stuff a lot. Yeah, his Marvel stuff was a lot more hit or miss. Yeah, some of the worst comics he ever wrote were definitely Marvel. I say this with no, love, Jeff Lemire. No, no, he's no. got some bad outside of Marvel. Because um, he was I'm part thinking... of New Fifty Two's Future's End. Oh, I yeah, I was not but, following that. But we was... can't really, we can't really chalk that up to to him alone because it was a team of of writers and also editorial. So I really well, liked. He did a run of Swamp Thing around the New Fifty Two at DC that was really great. We're talking Jeff Lemire now, guys. He wrote this comic Moon Knight, and no, he has he did a Animal long... Man. Scott Snyder did Swamp Thing, and they had a big crossover in the middle. Ah, that's right, that's right. It was. Um, I have every trait of that run of Animal Man. I think it's great. There hasn't been an Animal Man run since. Sadly. I didn't. Even, I didn't realize that. That's true. Wow. Yeah. And uh, that's one of those characters now. Um, Jeff Lemire is up there with Grant Morrison, right? In terms of like uh, this pantheon of creators that's allowed to work on Animal Man. He, <laughs> exactly. The character is kept safe. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. I'm looking at my bookshelf. I have an entire beautiful trade collection of Sweet Tooth by Jeff Lemire, which uh, has these um, awesome plaid covers. They're very good. That was my first uh, Jeff Lemire comic, and I loved it. I was ride or die for Lemire after reading Sweet Tooth. How about you? I was first introduced with Animal Man. I checked out... So I... When the New 52 was first coming out, I basically read every volume as they came out. Uh, So I've read probably about 75% of the New 52. I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh, Yeah. So I missed a lot of the smaller stuff. But Animal Man, I I read it and I read the first three volumes and then i reached in i'm like i need more but i wasn't following monthly comics at the time so there were no others and i was like who's the writer on this and i i kind of filed that name away in the back of my mind and then i didn't really read a lot of other comics for a while and one of my friends recommended his indie stuff uh the underwater welder no idea that i knew who jeff lemire was he didn't even know the name of it but he recommended it to me i looked at it i'm like hey it's the animal man guy And I read that and I was like, well, now I need to read all of his stuff. So I tracked down all of his stuff. 
That's so funny because I had a similar thing where um, so I read um, I Sweet Tooth was probably my the comic that meant the most to me in the months after I graduated college and I graduated right into mm-hmm. the recession so I was depressed and reading comics and that was pretty Ooh. much my life. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, for whatever reason, Sweet Tooth really hit a, struck a note with me, and it was like a really important comic to like getting me through a couple depressing months of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, I'll read everything by this guy. And I also, the second one by him I read was Underwater Welder, and I was so impressed with his cartooning because um, Jeff Lemire, in addition to being a very acclaimed writer, I think award-winning writer, he's also a fantastic artist with a very signature and unmistakable style. I love his style. It's very simple, and it's very rough. Like, there isn't a consistency to his figure work. It's very sketchy. It's very sketchy, but that works really well for his cartooning. And he's such a good storyteller that the polish of someone like Tony S. Daniel, you you don't want that from a Jeff Lemire story. The sketchiness makes it feel more raw, more human, and you feel more connected to it. So I love totally. that. And with um, the end, the other thing I love about uh, Lemire's like chaos style is um, it reminds me of like a uh, scary children's books and movies from when we were yeah. kids. Like um, I- I'm trying to think of an example right now, but like that feeling of when you're a kid and you're scared by something in a Miyazaki film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like the or like a lot of like a Nightmare Before Christmas type imagery, just like um that like spooky and it's for kids, but it's like a little bit disturbing. Some of the nightmare imagery from the Brave Little Toaster springs to mind. <laughs> yeah, you're laughing. I think you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of the zone that Lemire lives in with his art style, and also the yeah. kinds of stories he likes to tell. They're they're usually pretty scary and childish at the same time. Yeah, uh, I think I actually might have to changed my statement earlier the second one i ever read was trillium i also love trillium which was he did at vertigo a lot of his his best stuff was done at vertigo uh well that's not true a lot of his a lot of the stuff that he's drawn was at vertigo and then uh he did royal city at image but we're talking moon knight marvel this is the marvel podcast oh sure but i think this is all important to, to i think this is actually really important because lemire is such a um he was he's been in our top 10 more years than not in the last 10 years on multiversity yeah he's one of the best superhero writers out there he black hammer at dark horse has been top tier superheroing for... this is what i want to talk about because black hammer is such a hit and I find myself in this unenviable position where I am always like, somebody explain to me what I'm missing about Black Hammer. Because I can see that it's got no. a lot of cool qualities, but it's just really not resonating with me. So my plan is because I'm so enthusiastic about this Moon Knight now, I'm going to go and start. Because I, I a lot more Black Hammers come out and I haven't read all of it. So I'm going to start mm-hmm. at the beginning, go all the way forward and like really give it a read in order. And see if I can just like, uh, you know, f- shock myself into loving it. Because I, I know it's probably I'm missing something great. And if you don't love the main mini, uh, the main series, the best part of Black Hammer is that it's you've got your main minis and then you uh, your main series, and then you've got all these like four part mini series that tackle different characters, different eras, and they all have different artists. Some of them have different co writers, and so you get a very different feel from every mini series. And I love that. I love I love how it's, and each one is excellent because. Jeff Lemire kind of helps oversee a lot of it and keeps it kind of contained. But the strength of Black Hammer is that it centers the people. It's a humanist story. A lot of his, his stories are humanist. They, they focus on the people in these big situations 
and it's very it's very very concerned with the personal interpersonal dynamics and the internal lives of all these characters while there's also all this crazy ridiculous stuff but also because it's not bogged down by years and decades of continuity it's playing with all of that and it's saying here's here is a universe that has existed with all these characters and all these people but we don't care about that minutia right away we care about these six people at the beginning and that that would be very appealing to me if uh when done right so i'm excited to see that done more broadly it's the opposite of the image universe when it first started which was create as many characters as possible and get really stuck in the minutia of increasing the world Instead of going, the world exists, but here's all that matters. What, what you're making me think of is, I mean, now that we're talking about Jeff Lemire's whole body of work, and you're talking about how important the humanist element is to you, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I think maybe the central theme of Lemire's work that I really like is, do you remember the grim and gritty, grounded, realistic superhero boom starts after uh, Batman Begins, after the Nolan movie, right? Mm, I would argue that it really starts after Frank Miller's run on Batman. I, that's no, But that's different than what I'm talking about, because that's like when we started exploring like uh, dark themes, but that's still very campy darkness and like big action movie, red meat and cigars kind of action. After mm-hmm. Nolan is like when everyone was obsessed with showing all the seams in the armor. That's right, the New 52 launches kind of on the wave of Nolan and Jim Lee puts lines on all the costumes because you need to see seams. That's that's the kind oh, of you bet re- literal seams. Well that's yeah, literal seams. That's the kind of uh, grounded I'm talking about where um it's I it's, think militaristic. Yeah, militaristic, but it's bending over backwards to show well, you're that's exactly my point is everyone interpreted that as militaristic, but Lemire is the one who realized that the appeal of that approach is the real is the emotional realism, not mm-hmm. the like technical realism. So he's yeah. not stretching to make everything look like the military invented it and he's not trying to look at like real world analogs to take the magic out of anything. But he's really interested in exploring like how fantastical situations make people feel, and he's all about he, and he's like a real sensual feelings guy, but mm-hmm. in a really real way, a raw way, right? Sometimes the Lemire books are often heartbreaking. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, but okay, we're talking a lot about um Jeff Lemire, but I guess that and this is a message for um I don't know if we have a lot of new comics fans listening to this, but. Some wisdom that I found is at the beginning of reading comics, you, a lot of people are, um, especially if you're listening to a Marvel podcast, you want to read about your favorite characters, and then you'll find out that some writers ruined your favorite characters for whatever ruined means. But you quickly learn that the best thing to do is pick creators you like and follow them uh, from book to book because they'll make any character they touch be really cool. Yeah. I mean, I would still – I still love following characters because – you never know what you're going to get. And even if you get something real bad, some eventually there will probably be something real good, especially if you love the core of a character. Sure. And, I, you know, uh, I love reading a bad comic uh, sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I read a lot of comics. But I, poor, poor everything I just said, let's do the opposite of that approach. What was your familiarity with this before of Moon Knight, Elias? Well, like, What did you know about Moon Knight before you read this comic? Jack shit. This was like your first. This was the first Moon Knight comic I had ever read. Uh, I you, you, kind you saw of... the picture? Hmm? You like you saw the picture on the cover and you're just like Jeff Lemire, a guy dressed like that. Let's go. Yeah, I saw Jeff Lemire and I was like, the art looks cool, and the first issue cover was very striking, and so I was like, I want to try this. I want to see what it is, but it sold me a lot on Jeff Lemire, and then Greg Smallwood's art just made me go, oh, I'm definitely following this all the way through, and then I went back. Because it got me interested in the character of Moon Knight, I went back and I read the previous two runs. What So there was Bendis Maleev, 
and then uh, the really weird uh, triptych arc one, where it was three different arcs with three different creative teams. It was uh, Ellis and Shalvi, Wood and Smallwood, and then Bun, uh, Atkins, and Peralta, and those were the kind of creative teams, or the artist writers on it. And that was all pre-Secret Wars, and this was the first one after Secret Wars. Um, I remember the first, when I was, Ben, this was a big deal when I was getting back into the comics and the ultimate mm-hmm. Spider-Man was like well, the comic that got me back into comics. So I was reading a lot of Bendis. So Bendis Moon Knight was the first, uh, when that was coming out, I was reading that. And I also went back and I started reading some of the Marvel Knight stuff. And I even read some issues from the eighties run. And I thought Moon Knight was a cool character and like, I got the appeal. And I think that Bendis run is really cool and underrated. Actually. I think that's some of his best work from that era. It is. It, I really liked it. It, Definitely peters out, but that's because it got canceled. Yeah, and that happens <laughs> it got to, canceled from low sales. That happens to better books and to worse books. Yep. Um, and I guess I remember a notion at the time that like the Moon Knight purists didn't like that run because that run, the gimmick of it is that Moon Knight has like the the imaginary friend spirits of Spider Man, Wolverine, and Captain America like living in his head and advising him, like spirit advisors. Mm-hmm. And, like, morphing into them and, like, basically, and he's Moon Knight, so he doesn't have power, so he's, like, taping kitchen knives to his knuckles or hitting people with trash can lids or whatever um, to emulate the different characters. And some people were acting like that ruined the character, but what I love about Moon Knight is I think the appeal of him is how mutable he is and how nothing ruins Moon Knight because he's insane. And the the storyteller makes insane choices. Yeah, he does. He has, he's he's the most mutable because his, his core identity is more fractured than others in that... They can they can move and move. I, I get. I guess I'm I'm trying to fight against, which I think we'll we'll kind of get into later. Is, is painting characters is just broad based asylum stereotypical. Oh, they're crazy. Yeah, but... and the the asylum thing. I mean, it's not totally new, but that was kind of a new image that got played with in this run. To, yeah, successfully, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I guess more precisely, what you're, the core of Moon Knight is that he's fractured. So if you add more fractures to it, you're not uh, diluting the character because every time you um, come up with more identities for Moon Knight to explore, that's elements of the character you can explore. Yeah. Because Moon Knight, if you're not familiar, dear listener, is um, def- a character who's defined by having... Um, they describe it in different ways, but he has multiple personalities. Um, and one of them is a vigilante superhero named Moon Knight. And one of them is a former, like, a black ops mercenary named Mark Spector. And then there's a whole bunch of others, depending on the run you're reading. Yeah. And it's... A, so, anyone familiar with Immortal Hulk is probably quite familiar with uh, DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder, which is what Mark uh, at Moon Knight has. They have the same... Not illness... But, I don't yeah. hold a lot of I don't hold that diagnosis uh, a lot of credence in that diagnosis because the our under our medical understanding of disorders yeah. like that progresses so quickly that like a year after somebody declares it that we will realize that that was like gravely mistaken and possibly even offensively mistaken. So I try to um, in stories like this because I think that the themes of duality and identity are so powerful. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to give it a little bit of scientific leeway because this is like fantasy and there's also hulks and shit. Yeah, and I had I once had a professor. Is like when you diagnose a character, you kill the story because it's no longer a story; it's a diagnosis. I'm like, wow, that's actually uh, really hitting me. I think that's very wise. Yeah, I'm like that. That's pretty. That's fair. So it's it's more interesting to look at the person than at the diagnosis, and also better to look at the person. <laughs> and ju- and just as um, Wolverine technically is a hyper evolved wolf. 
uh, from a species of wolves that evolved into uh, hominids rather than uh, apes. Uh, that is indeed Wolverine's real origin story in the currently existing Marvel continuity. We just don't ta- have to talk about that to understand and appreciate Wolverine. <laughs> Um, what? Yeah, yeah, he's from a secret werewolf race. It's a terrible, terrible uh, Jeff Loeb comic. Oh, God. Oh, um, Jeff Loeb. But, oh. like, they've never written that out of continuity as far as I know. Wolverine is still, like, a super werewolf uh, oh, from a, who is, like, not from the regular mutant race but the werewolf mutant race that Wolfsbane is also part of. Okay. Um, yeah, right, that's all stupid. And you're like, I feel stupider and dumber and, for, and worse for knowing this. And that's kind of how I feel about, like, giving Moon Knight a real diagnosis. His split personalities are a literary choice, not a medical one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And because so you, you, you drive yourself crazy if you're just like, well, this doesn't match up to science. And it's like, yeah, yeah, but you know what they're trying to say. They're trying to say that this guy is looking for himself. He doesn't know who he really is. And who can't relate to that? Mm-hmm. True. And I don't know if this goes all the way back to the beginning or how much does. Uh, because Moon Knight's been around for... He's been around since 1975, and I love how he didn't start in his own series. He started in Werewolf by Night, number 32. Which makes sense. Werewolves come out of the moon. He's the Night of the Moon. It makes as much sense as the moon on his face. (laughs) It's a nice tie-in to some of the stuff that happens in this this run. But apparently the characters, they're all previous... Either Moon Knight or previous Marvel characters. I just had no idea. I thought... Half of them were made up whole cloth, but they weren't. I definitely remember Frenchie from a bunch of uh, Moon Knight comics I've read, and but, um, uh, I think what's his face, uh, Lupinor. Oh, the the space guy. Yes, Space Wolf. <laughs> space Wolf. Um, well, so you also um. You were talking about when you were describing the appeal of Black Hammer, you mentioned how in all the miniseries, Lemire works with all these different artists. And you said that like that was a virtue of the book. And that's what I've heard before, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And each artist is picked to each series. It's not like in the middle of a Captain America run, suddenly the art will completely change and the story will kind of falter because of because of a change yeah and and that's that for me it was the big part of the appeal of this book and that's what got it from i'm really enjoying this to this is one of my favorites is um uh, i think you mentioned this or i mentioned this at the beginning but uh smallwood uh mm-hmm. greg smallwood is the main artist for uh, most of the issues but there are also um other artists including uh wilfredo torres francesco francavella and james stoko the latter two being, like, among my favorite all-time artists. And yeah. I didn't know they were in this until I turned the page and I was like, holy <laughs> shit, is somebody doing an amazing impersonation of Francesco Francavella? Because that looks dead on like his best work. And then I flipped back to the credits at the beginning and I was like, what? They? And then I did the same thing when I got to the Stoko pages. <laughs> I was just like, this looks so much like James Stoko, but that would be crazy. You can't get Stoko and Francesco Francavella in a Moon Knight comic that I've never even read before. But they're both in it and they do amazing work. Exactly. That was just, like, I guess spoilers for the real surprise for me for this series. Because, like, plot, I could tell, you know, stuff happens and it's cool. But that art, holy Toledo. Holy Torres. (laughs) When I, so when I was first, I read this month to month originally. And I reread it issue by issue. So I, when I got to issue five of the, which is the end of the first arc, I saw the credits. I'm like, ah, Yes! Yes! I was so excited to see the art again. And even though I had seen it a million times, it still got me. It still got me on the page turns. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, what's coming next? That's Lemire having the skill of, um, of, of playing the artist like they're a symphony. He's conducting them. 
You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Yeah. So I'm just going to do a quick rundown of the full team. So we got Jeff Lemire, and then we've got illustrations by Greg Smallwood, Wilfredo Torres, Francesco Francavilla, uh, and James Stoko. And then we've got it colored by, respectively, Jordi Belair, who is our colorist of 2020, best colorist, Michael Garland, and then uh, Francesco Francavilla and uh, James Stoko color themselves. And it's all lettered by Corey Petit, as always. I want to rant more about the artwork in this book, but I think we should take a quick commercial break. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commanding. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinborough, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe. Subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. Welcome back, everyone. So we've been talking about Moonlight by Jeff Lemire, Greg Smallwood, et al. And we had to take a break for commercials and also to let Jake calm down so that we can ramp back up again. <laughs> because this has been an exciting, revelatory series for him. I really like this comic. I legitimately think that we should talk about this comic in the same breath as Fraction Hawkeye. I think this is as artful a comic, although um, less influential because no one's talking about it, and as definitive a run. Like, there's a Moon Knight TV show coming out. Um, I, as of time of recording, uh, there is negotiations so that Oscar Isaac would be playing the titular role of Moon Knight, and... People are going to be asking, what Moon Knight comic should we read? And just, it's obvious that it should be this one. This is the perfect Moon Knight Mm -hmm. comic. It's got everything. Yeah, I, you can't really disagree with that. This is the perfect Moon Knight comic, and it's short enough that you can read the whole thing and not feel overwhelmed. It's self-contained enough, but it also feels part of a a grander tradition. And that's kind of, that's often the best kind of run, especially to introduce people to a character. And this book, so... A little bit of, I guess, context for when this book was coming out. It was coming out during the all-new, all-different Marvel uh, era, which we did a whole episode on the nonsense that was Marvel trying to rebrand itself every year, year and a half. And that might be one of the reasons why this book kind of isn't talked about as much, because I think it got lost in the shuffle, because it's short. Because it was only 14 issues, and then it was directly followed up by another run. Like When Legacy launched, it got renumbered and a new team came on. And so it didn't really have as much time, I think, to percolate. I've been reading Marvel pretty consistently since about 2009, mm-hmm. which is now more than a decade. And um, and I th- this era that this Moon Knight was, this all-new, all-different era, I think was one of the weakest eras. This was one of the closest I came off to falling off of most Marvel books completely. Yeah, it which is unfortunate because it really pushed new heroes new status quos and yeah i was really rooting for those books yeah just i for various reasons different things didn't click but i always hoped in my heart that there was these hidden gems that i would one day discover and this is absolutely one of them I'm glad um, I could introduce it. Yeah, so it starts off with just a genius premise, and I remember reading a couple of these issues, and I thought it was genius then too, where Moon Knight wakes up in a horrifying asylum um, right out of 
one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Mm-hmm. And um, and because Moon Knight has grappled with uh, this multiple personality thing in the past, the fact that everyone in the uh, the doctors in the asylum are telling him that he's not Moon Knight is just like a obvious and great conflict for Moon Knight that I don't think had ever been done like that before. Which is interesting because when I first started reading just the general premise, I'm like, okay, this has been something that's done to death with superheroes uh they wake up and they're they're told oh you never were it was all a figment of your imagination and you've always been here type deal yeah every one of those uh fantasy shows has an episode like that there's a buffy like that and there's a supernatural like that and it it usually is like you kind of know that it's that it's a cop out that it's not real but here it kind of takes on a different immediacy because because Moon Knight has grappled with mental illness and I don't know because again I haven't read enough free whether or not he's been to uh, any sort of mental hospital or been institutionalized or anything so it's well within the possibility that he has been there or he was recently put there or something has gone wrong or like there there are a million different ways it could go and the team makes it so engaging and so interesting that while you're both not sure what's quote-unquote real and what's not you are pretty sure that you can trust moon knight to suss it out to be like well i believe that his experience here is true and that what he's seeing is reality but how and why and there are so many questions that you just got to keep reading and it's it's just done so masterfully that even though the general premise feels old hat. It never, it never feels stale. Right. Well, and then like the the reality that he's actually seeing is uh, crazy because he's seeing things like uh, it looks like when he puts on the sunglasses from them, all the ner- the the orderlies grow like crocodile faces mm-hmm. or, j- or jackals rather. And, they become um, jackals, and and the she becomes the main the main the main doctor dr emmett becomes amit the soul leader and all these and egyptian new york city is getting covered with a sandstorm and there's like mummies on the subways yeah and like and that stuff is cool too. i was reading and i was just like man remember when we were kids and the mummy came out and you're like oh man there's gonna be a mummy movie every year for the rest of my life and then that just kind of uh, went away maybe for for good reason yeah yeah, probably. Mummy stuff is cool. <laughs> when you know, punching undead, shambling mummies on the New York City subway is a cool adventure comic. Yeah, and it's interesting that the mummies have been so intertwined with Egypt and Egyptian mythology. When mummies exist all around the world, mummification as a process. That's true. I wonder why. I, I mean, I don't want to. I'm sure there's a whole reason, but well, I think it's like a orientalist. The two have become. Hmm? Uh, I think it's like an orientalist Egyptologist yeah. during the Victorian era, uh, making uh, and the the types of archaeology and tomb raiding that was going on, making it like popular uh, reading material in Victorian London. And it was easy to find those mummies because there's giant signposts in the middle of flat sand. <laughs> Yeah, as to where there might be bodies. Yeah, but I, I think when, when we're talking about the mummy genre, we're talking about like the aesthetics of that like yeah. gross imperialist Egypt view, which is why it's my dream that we create a the character in like a mummy franchise who is an Egyptian who is trying to take the like steal the mummies from the museums and take them back to Egypt. I just don't oh, know why this hasn't be been great. a character. Everyone would love this movie, that and then you just fun. make it just like the Brendan Fraser movie, right? Just like this character <laughs> is kind of a smug asshole, but they're like a great adventure. It's got like an uncharted vibe. Everyone's really charming one of the mummies could could actually be just the reincarnation of some asshole and like the others are great they always are it always 
And it always works like that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the other thing I loved with all this pulp adventure stuff at the beginning is the first time you... There's a couple times in the early issues where um, Mark pulls various uh, things over his face to use as like makeshift masks when he needs to go into Moon Knight mode. Mm-hmm. But I think it's three issues in when there's the big reveal and he shows up as Mr. Knight, who is the Moon Knight personality who wears a, a white suit with a white Moon Knight mask. And he's all in white and he's just like a suave detective. It's... I... I love that design. It's such a striking image. And I think of all of the redesigns that Moon Knight has gone through over the years, you can't beat the classic because the classic is that that gothic giant cape sitting on a rooftop, pseudo-Batman, all shadows and brooding. But this one is... It feels more unique to him. And I love the little pop of skin in between the gloves and the suit jackets especially if like when he takes the jacket off and he's punching people well yeah that's that lo-fi um like uh lemire pays attention to these little details and moon knight is that kind of character it's like a perfect match yeah oh i forgot to mention there is one more artist on this book and it is jeff lemire uh which parts did lemire do i i believe that he drew the i think it's an issue two or three he drew the pages in the diary the little (laughs) scratchy pages where he's like this is my grappling hook and the moon knight copter or the moon copter. All of those, those were Jeff Lemire. Um, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, um, I found that out in the letters page at the back of one of the issues. What I, um, what, so what I was going to say is, so the first time he comes out dressed like Mr. Knight, uh, it's an amazing moment. He, the fact that he waits three issues is uh, great pacing, and the reveal is perfect, and Smallwood kills it. But then Moon Knight says, or Mr. Knight says, We are dealing with an invasion of immortals from another dimension. We are on the clock, people. Let's rock. And that's the dorkiest thing I've ever heard. But you're just like, yeah, if I could escape a mental asylum wearing this mask and this amazing white tuxedo, obviously that's what I would say. Like, no one's going to question me. Yeah. We're so beyond that now. And it just lets Lemire write the cheesiest one-liners, and they always feel, like, so in context of the situation. Because it just sounds like he's quoting, like, a bad Steven Seagal movie. Because <laughs> And you just believe that Mark Spector grew up watching Steven Seagal movies and then, like, creating personalities based on them. Personalities yeah. that are more charming than Steven Seagal, which isn't hard. Ooh, brutal. Oh, Steven Seagal's a monster. Oh, I, I don't know anything about him. Well, I won't uh, horrify so, you I, on the air. Okay. I, we should talk about also, uh, so the, Mr. Knight was introduced in one of the previous Moon Knight runs, the famous um, Elish uh, Shelby run. Mm-hmm. You said you read that one as well? I did. I, I read that the all the, I can words good. <laughs> I, I read the previous run that was prior to Secret Wars and then, but after Bendis Malieve, because that was, that was that weird three part where there was a different team every arc. Yeah, well, because at that time, Ellis was famous for he would swoop into Marvel and he would do uh, six issues on a whatever character he felt like, and then people would kind of pick it up in his wake. Yeah. That was a thing that they were doing for a while. That was the run that those six Ellis and Shelby issues would be the six issues I would have recommended before the allegations were made about uh, Ellis, which... Uh, I've been really personally struggling with because I really love so many of his comics. And personally, I'm having trouble returning to a lot of them. I haven't been able to read them since we found out all that bad stuff. And so um, I'm also happy to have another Moon Knight uh, run to really love because I was kind of at sea. That one was the best, but I didn't want to read it. Yeah. And I would 
we're not really going to get into that here. If you want more details, they are. It's been documented elsewhere. I think the site documented a lot of it. We did some good original reporting at the time. Yeah. So I would look into that if you are curious. But we're here to talk about good stuff, good Moon Knight. Oh, yes. And I, well, and I wanted to just to connect that Shalvi had created that look. Uh, yes. Declan Shalvi had created that look that you were um, of Mr. Knight that you were so taken with. But anyway, um, they, go in this, they go on like, this big um, hallucinatory Egypt adventure. Um, but the second arc is where we really get into the, the different artists. Yeah. And one, one thing that I think I, I just kind of noticed that they're escaping presumably from the underground to, to the ground. So they were kind of trapped in their own tomb. They were ta- trapped in the underside of a pyramid. Uh, which were always mazes and meant to keep the souls of the damned or whatever. I think now there were the, the the mazes were to keep out tomb raiders, and because all the valuable stuff was inside, and that was meant to go on to the next the next life, and that's kind of what they're doing here. There's a lot of there are a lot of small details in the background and in the settings that add up to I think like you said one of those one of those works that really last because there are so many layers like the Hawkeye run by uh, Fraction and Naya. And the more I think about this run, the more I, I kind of interrogate the, the titles and the look and kind of placement of stuff, uh, the more I find. Yeah, it's just a uh, truly uh, magnificent comic. And then um, we got Werewolves on the Moon. Right, so then we get Werewolves on the Moon. So the second arc really gets into there being a lot of different artists. And what's so cool is the different artists are drawing the different Moon Knight characters, like his different personalities, and each one of them is going through a parallel adventure, and you're, but that are all really the same adventure, and you're trying to figure it out because they perceive things so differently. It has to be drawn by a different artist. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we got um, uh, Jake Lockley, who is a mustachioed cab driver with a little hat on. And he's in this, like, moody, noir Martin Scorsese piece where he's, like, going to diners. at. It's like Taxi Driver. He's, like, going to diners at midnight. I mean, that's what he is. Yeah, and getting, like, beat up in alleys trying to, like, solve a mystery. And that's the one that's drawn by, uh, you say, Frank Avea? Frank Avea? Uh, Francavia, because he's uh, Italian. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I uh, do, I guess one of those that I've never said out loud to a person before. Franz uh, Avia, whom I love um, from everything from his uh, Hellboy work to his Afterlife with Archie. Have you have you read his uh, his stuff with Scott Snyder over at DC? Yeah, wouldn't miss it. Love it. Um, yeah, and it's, he's he's uh, so I didn't and I didn't know he was going to be in this. So he's doing this like moody noir cab driver thing, and it's perfect. It's so good. And then there's Moon Knight One, who is a like <laughs> yeah. fighter pilot kind of. It's like a, a Gundam Wing, right? Is the vibe? Yeah, I was uh, I was about to say it's basically Gundam, but Marvel. Yeah, it's Gundam, and he's fighting these like pretty actually horrifying uh, alien werewolf army, and it's drawn by uh, James Stoko, who um, I first came to know Stoko through uh, Orkstein, which was his first mm-hmm. solo hit. Uh, he's gone on to do really amazing Godzilla comics, including the Half Century War, and what was his Alien comic called? That one was incredible too. Alien Dead Orbit. Yeah, Dead Orbit. He was recently nominated. I don't know. I don't remember if he won an, an Eisner for the Sobek, tying it back to Egypt. Right, right. I read Sobek too. Yeah, Stoko is just um, one of my very favorite artists. I will, if I find out he's doing a book, he's his art is enough to get me on it alone. And so he's doing this amazing Gundam riff, and he's so good at drawing it because his monsters are so scary and his robots are so meticulously 
drawn. Yeah, you can see the seams, but you can also see every single bolt and the the rust, and that's great. Um, and then there's Wilfredo Torres, who I don't know if I'm familiar with him, actually. Um, I would, he's uh, more indie and more new, but he's done a lot of stuff over at Dark Horse. He did Bang with... Um, this is more recent. He did Bang with uh, Matt Kint, and he did The Quantum Age, which was a Black Hammer book. Uh, I don't know what else he has done, but I know he's done other stuff, and I always enjoy seeing it. His stuff is very clean, very... Yep. Uh, not. Not Art Deco, but... It kind of uh, looks like uh, some of the more recent Archie comics. Uh, like, yeah. It's like the, he would do a really good Riverdale comic in the style of the show right now, which is a comic. <laughs> yeah. I just, I don't know how to explain this idea. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Um, it's like such a complicated idea that um, means so li- very little. Well, yeah, Wilfredo Torres would do a great job at that. And he's doing um, Stephen Grant, who is a millionaire... And a Hollywood producer who's making a Moon Knight movie, which is an idea that was introduced in the Bendis run. Mm-hmm. Um, which they, is wild. Uh, but what's so fun about that is that's what completely shatters the your understanding of the reality of Moon Knight. Because if he is this struggling noir cab driver and a spaceman and like a guy in an asylum and a superhero vigilante, if he's all these things, then how does he also like where's the million dollars come out? Why doesn't the cab driver get a million dollars? <laughs> if he just right if if he has that in his bank account yeah uh, why I, can't he I spend it on an extra cab yeah i didn't really think of it that that deeply i i guess i was thinking of it as i for some reason i i kept imagining it as him falling through different dimensions like each each version of him it wasn't one continuous con- uh congruent line of actions it was like reality was actually shifting around him as he was falling through each each version uh that he saw but as we find out at the end of the arc it actually was still all in his head so that's why it's able to to happen it i i think i was thinking there was like some magic in play and or or something because it's comic books and you never really know what's going on. Well, and he doesn't know what's going on. And what's yeah. fun, and again, the fun thing about Moon Knight is that so does that mean that he has versions of Spider Man and Wolverine in his head still that are his Spider Man and Wolverine that can like interact with the other personalities? Uh, they can go fight werewolves on the moon? Or mm-hmm. like. Does that mean that the times when it seemed like he was literally fighting crime as uh, Jake Lockley in the 70s comics, that actually uh, those were just uh, metaphors or dreams or something? Like, the ambiguity is part of the fun. Mm -hmm. That's what I love so much about it. Anyway, having it by different artists is incredible. The Hollywood story also is, like, an exciting story, but it's not heightened. It's just about this, like, really stressed-out producer trying to make a fantasy movie, and he's, like, uh, having a panic attack. Yeah, and he has to yell at the actor Mark Spector, who's playing <laughs> Moon Knight. Yeah, and but and that's really compelling too. Um, just like as drama, I was like interested in the Hollywood drama, and then the fact that it wasn't really happening. Right, it was it was as exciting as the silly werewolf plot. Just like um, each of those modes of storytelling was like a different fun arc that these different amazing artists got to lend their storytelling might to. Yeah, I I really love the way Torres breaks in the first issue of uh, the Incarnations arc. Uh, it's the second arc. I got it. the title wrong in our notes. I wrote Ascendance, Ascension, which is not true. It's Incarnations. Easy mistake to make. Easy mistake. But I love how he breaks it, and he's like, you've got this fight between Moon Knight and some generically Hollywood Egyptian guy. 
uh, and or I guess maybe stereotypical would be more <laughs> ancient ancient Egyptian, and then the boom mic comes in and covers the dialogue <laughs> on the bottom of the page, and you're like, and then you turn the page and it's just this two page this two page spread of even farther back in the set, and they're saying, cut, why is the boom in the shot again? I'm like, okay, you've got me. <laughs> you got me. Right, it's a and great gag. And then they talk about working with Marvel Studios and, and Ant-Man and superhero fatigue, and I'm like, okay. The superhero fatigue stuff was so good. That was, Lemire pulled it off, and I feel like so many writers would have gotten this wrong, where it was just dialed in enough to the way people were talking about that that you recognized it and it was funny, but it wasn't so specific. It felt mean-spirited or over the top. Yeah. Just like I thought, he really nailed it. Um, yeah, all the but that's exactly I, I complete. All of the stories are compelling in and of themselves, and the fact that you, the, uh, the game of it is that they're all the same story, and you're trying to put the pieces together is like yeah. an amazing puzzle of a story. I just love stuff like that. And that's I think that's Nolan like again. I Westworld it's like Jonathan Nolan. Mm-hmm. And Lisa Joy, can't forget Lisa. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's joy-like as well as Nolan-like. <laughs> Nolan-esque and joy-like. And then in what I felt like was the really Lemire touch on this, mm-hmm. the third arc then becomes a flashback arc that um, fills in all the pieces of this character so far. Lemire yeah. is uh, so emotional that he's really good at getting you to buy into his characters while knowing very little about them. And then he loves to um, present to you the facts of the matter as like this emotional catharsis that makes you understand why they are this way. Yeah. And it's it's done so well that you until it arrives, you didn't know you needed it. And then when it's there, you're like, oh, I totally needed this. But also, I didn't. Like, you could read the first, you know, two arcs and really not need to know anything about Moon Knight or, or Mark Spector or any of the characters. It's given to you. It's revealed enough. But then as soon as you start learning more about... Mark's past, you're like, oh, this recontextualizes everything, or contextualizes parts of it. Um, but also, well, you don't. Like, you could just read the origin, and it would be a fantastic backstory of who is this guy. Yeah, well, especially um, if in an ongoing comic, I think you expect them to leave it on an ambiguous note, and because that's the whole game with it is every arc, every uh, writer, we change what the premise of Moon Knight is. But yeah. the the weight that Lemire can give to this final arc, it really feels like his definitive statement on this is a real guy. His name is Mark Spector. He grew up in Chicago. He had mental health problems as a kid. Um, he created like uh, identities to protect him from uh, sadness, and then he had this uh, traumatic experience in the army like a uh, Lemire at the end is like this is a real guy with a real life and that's not um, necessary because those first two arcs stand so good on their own but having a definitive statement feels like whatever the opposite of a cop-out is I don't think it would have been a cop-out if he left it on those terms because I think that's legit but this is so much stronger of a statement he's like no I do have answers to my questions and I feel strongly that they are interesting and he's right and he leaves the door open at the end to be like Here's another you anyone could do whatever they want afterwards with this, but all of the questions I set out to ask and present, I'm going to answer them and I've answered them. And because I'm not writing for 20 years that has to go ongoing, I can actually answer them and not find out five years down the line that I forgot to answer four of them. Here's my pitch for the next one. You um, have Mark Spector like try to banish all his other identities for whatever reason. But it doesn't work. Moon Knight banishes all the identities, and then he can't not be Moon Knight, and he can't take off the costume, and then you just made the comic about him like going to the diner and doing his laundry and stuff, but he's always Moon Knight, and he can't be Mark Spector anymore. <laughs> so he's got to like do his laundry in a really Moon Knight way, and this is the conflict. That's my pitch for a Moon Knight comic. 
and he's trying to figure out how to repair the former personalities. They're all, they're um, all like, no, we're, we're done. <laughs> well, they have can fun, all come have back. Have fun and... trying to do your laundry in your in your stupid cape. Yeah, just uh, just like the Wolverine one comes back when he least expected. He's like, oh god damn it. <laughs> now I've got knives while trying to do laundry. <laughs> yeah, and but then, yeah, exactly. This is uh, what I would do with Moon Knight. Um, there was a couple of other things that stuck out at you, Elias, wasn't there? Yeah. So one of the things is so uh, Mark Spector is one of the few Jewish characters at Marvel. Which I forgot until I was reading this and I, I Googled something about him and I, I saw that in his little character bio. And then I was like, well, that's cool. I guess it's not relevant to this story, though. And I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah. And I, I have complained a lot about Jewish characters not really being the space to be Jewish in whatever way that means for the character. Uh, like in the same way that like Daredevil is allowed to be Catholic and that informs so much of what he does, specifically Catholic guilt, whether that's a very, very basic and stereotypical version of, or maybe not stereotypical, but like it's a story one dimensional, a lot of people where it's just like guilt, 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 or if it's more complicated, uh, it's always kind of a piece of him. But most of the Jewish characters don't, aren't at least not now. They don't really exude that, which I've kind of has frustrated me a lot. Well, Moon Knight has a has a cheat. There's a trick with Moon Knight. Yeah, and the best part about Moon Knight is that he is lapsed. He's basically just like, no, I don't like this. Well, and that's, that's not, part that's of who he is. That's interesting that you thought of that as the cheat. That's not what I was going to say at all. No, oh, what's what's the cheat then? Well, those those other characters are not. Um, they all seem secular, right? And that's kind of your uh, complaint is they just seem secular. They're not that cultural. They're kind of uh, superficially Jewish, which is a legitimate way a lot of people feel. Yeah, but also, and a lot of times we don't have stories that even address it. Like, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like it feels like there are times when the character is a lot more in tune, and when the character is a lot less in tune to My, whatever that I... might mean. The way I like to complain about what you're describing is um, there's a whole lot of menorahs going around. <laughs> yeah. like, I could find you a lot of issues with a lot of Marvel superheroes doing shit with menorahs. I mean mostly lighting them, but there's also the one time Kitty Pride killed Apocalypse with a menorah. <laughs> lest we forget. <laughs> um, she was blowing out a menorah in one, one of the panels. In an earlier panel, and then she kills him with a menorah. She stabs him with it. She phases it into his heart. Anyway. I, lest we forget. I cannot believe that happened in a Marvel comic in 2019. <laughs> Moon Knight, the thing that, that, that helps him is that um, he's not secular. He is the religious son of a rabbi. We see him wearing a kippah as a teen, which is a thing that uh, my cousin did growing up. And, um, but I don't know a lot of other Jewish people who did that, except for yourself, in fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, yeah I, I know people who wear kippah in a lot of contexts, but um, not a lot of people who wear it on the reg. And uh, Elias Rosner and Elias Spector, the father of Moon Knight, um, do as well. They do. And that's an important enough part of his life that, and it's made it's made very clear here, but it's not it's not overly hammered in. It's just a part of the not the scenery, but the comic. And I it's part I of really appreciated that when I turned the page and it was a flashback to where to his his past and he's wearing a yarmulke, but Stephen isn't, which totally tracks. And then we find out that his father is a rabbi, but he's definitely either a modern Orthodox or a conservative rabbi because he's wearing... He seems pretty conservative, though. He seems pretty buttoned down. Yeah. He's well, not like I... a folksy uh, a, a folksy reform or reconstructionist rabbi. No. With, like, big sideburns and a guitar. <laughs> That's the kind of music. Especially with the, the tweed, tweed and the patches. 
Yeah, but I so what I think is so cool is Jeff Lemire is like codifying a literary thing because in Catholic storytelling we understand Catholic guilt. There's like a bunch of types of stories you can tell with that. That's like a storytelling convention, Mm -hmm. and it takes the place of more nuanced storytelling, and that's great too. But a lot of people love the Daredevil Catholic guilt stories, Mm -hmm. Um, and the storytelling convention that that's giving to or like really cementing for Moon Knight is that he's the rabbi's son, and I think Jewish people understand that the rabbi's son has certain connotations, right? There's yeah. a lot of expectations on him. He's a very desirable catch, or so like old women in the community seem to insist. Mm-hmm. You want to marry the rabbi's son, and um, usually the way he's portrayed is like he's pre- he's handsome and he's helpful and he's really nice, but all the pressure on him is like giving him a lot of angst. Mm-hmm. Um, so that creates this uh, storytelling convention, and now you can tell stories about young Mark Spector being the rabbi's son and how that pressure on him, you know, led to him being the person he is today. Yeah. And I think that that's such a great that's a that's so constructive. Lemire is setting up future writers to write about Judaism in um, not a deep way, but in a fun and real way. Mm-hmm. And it's true to the character that we've set up. That he is he ran he runs away after the the funeral of his dad, having taken off his kippah. Like that that is a that's a touch that Smallwood and Lemire put into the comic. Because he's wearing it, and it's very obvious. It's this big white kippah with a, with blue in the middle. I don't know if it's in the shape of a Star of David, but it's it's decorative, it's... but it, it's somewhat understated. And then when he goes to his room and grabs his bag to run off to chase the moon, he's not wearing it anymore. And he's kind of, it's symbolically, he has left behind his previous life. He's left behind all these expectations, uh, which the yarmulke came with as being the rabbi's son. And he's off to do whatever he's doing and ends up doing some pretty horrible things. Yeah, he, well, uh, and you really, you see this guy uh, fall apart and then you really, the last arc ma- makes it that grounded superhero story, the emotionally grounded superhero story, because now it's not about uh, Space Wolves anymore, although they do make an appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about this guy's breakdown and it, it becomes this really tragic story. Um, yeah. And you could read it the and you could read the entire thing that way, or you could not. You could read it with Space Wolves. I love that it has that uh, that range of tone and um, storytelling. It, it pulls it off, and I love so I love shit like this. One one other thing that I kind of kept thinking about was it's really funny that this Jewish guy from Chicago gets so embroiled with Egyptian gods. Okay, so my other idea for a Moon Knight comic is that Mark Spector Moon Knight battles ten villains, and they're the ten plagues of Egypt. <laughs> And they just do, like, a whole Exodus thing. And you see where I'm going with this, right? Just, like, how cool yeah. would the death of the firstborn-themed villain be? And then there would be this, like, cool Hickman-style villain squad that anyone could use in anything they ever want to use. I mean, hell, one of them is just darkness. Yeah. Darkness so powerful you can't move. Maybe just put Toad in there for frogs. <laughs> oh, my God. You could it's just build a... it with a lot of pre-existing Marvel Yeah, villains. you do, like, Morbius for blood and Toad for frogs. <laughs> What would you do for hail? Um, you could do F- a Blizz- Blizzard, the Iron Man villain. Uh-huh. And you got boils. I don't know for boils. Maybe a Toxic Doxy? <laughs> she seems like she'd give people boils for fun. That seems like uh, her kind of crime. <laughs> you would have to invent at least one or two new ones. Um, yeah, that sounds great, though. And then they're just like a big team, and then Moon Knight needs to face them all, and then he has to... Uh, it ends with him versus the Living Pharaoh or something. This is a villain called the Living Pharaoh? Yeah, he's an X-Men villain, mostly. Oh, okay. Um, he shows up in Nova. No, that's the Sphinx who shows up in Nova. You got a lot of options with Egypt and Marvel is what I'm saying. Yeah. You know what we should have read for next time is we should have read Cap Wolf. That would have been so related. Uh, I know, but you gotta... 
I think we'll find another another segue into Cap Wolf. I hope so. I hope that the Disney Plus Cap Wolf show is in, is uh, <laughs> announced very shortly. So I don't know if you know this because I don't, but it was Bushman part of Mark Spector's original origin. Yes, I do know this, and he's a frequently recurring villain because of his involvement with the origin, as these as these things tend to go. Okay, good to uh, know. Yeah, because I was like, being... who is this guy? He ends up being the least impactful. He, You feel that he's supposed to be important, but he actually doesn't have a lot of effect on this particular story. No, but it feels kind of like he's there. But uh, in the same way that like a lot of the other antagonistic forces in that back in that backstory is more more there to be reflected against Mark. Like who is that? Who is Mark when confronted with Bushman? And while at first he doesn't really care, he's like, whatever, I want the money. I'll right. do whatever. Well, Bushman re- represents his final mistake, the one that like drove him into being into this fractured situation. Because yeah. uh, Bushman, all the signs were there that he should have seen that this was a terrible idea to go along with this guy. Mm-hmm. And then it goes wrong, and it's all his fault, all Mark's fault. And that's like the final thing that shatters him into all these different versions of himself, and where like where he completely loses control. And again, I just think that's really relatable. And I wonder if we're reading the ending a little bit differently. Do you think Khonshu is real? I mean, I know Khonshu. Or do you think he is expressly part of Moon Knight or, or the one one of Mark's personalities? Okay, this is why this is such an interesting question, is because it has a definitive answer. The answer is yes, Khonshu is real. I just read, uh, what was that stupid Avengers arc that wasn't very good that just wrapped up called? Uh, Fist of Khonshu. Fist of Khonshu, yeah. By the way, I'm but I mean, dish- in the context of this story, right? But so, but what's interesting about this is that this question has a definitive answer in the story because Khonshu is real. But the the book is so rich with the ambiguity of making you question this. So, is Khonshu real? Um, I don't know because what's so interesting is that the Khonshu visits him and like whispers dark things to him about his father way before he get, he hears of the temple. Yeah, when he's a little kid. So the hallucinations of Kanchu definitely represent something personal to him, like his fear of losing his father and disappointing him is how I re- would read it. And mm-hmm. um, But Kanchu is also real. So the, I guess my no prize answer is that Kanchu was like reaching back through time with magical powers to torment this kid um, who was destined to be his champion to make him more pliable because Kanchu is kind of an evil, evil dick. Yeah. Yeah, or um, my favorite reading of a lot of these Marvel characters is a lot of these things were just destined. Like, uh, there's a lot of spider heroes throughout the ages, and there's a lot of um, Norse Viking heroes, and they follow similar paths, and they these, these archetypes recur throughout the Marvel history of the universe. Mm-hmm. So just in that spirit, um, of course, Mark's hallucination of his torment and of his trauma about his childhood would match on to also how he sees Khonshu when he like views this god for the first time. It's thematic rather than literal. I like both those answers. But Conchu's real. He just fought Iron Man. Okay. Because that, that was how I was reading. That that Conchu was real external to Mark. I think that that's a good distinction. Because Jake Lockley is real in the same way uh, that Mark Spector is. He is part of Mark. But Conchu as an external entity acting upon Mark and and Mark at all, I think. That that was my reading too, that Conchu is basically fucking with him this entire time and he's the reason why Mark is seeing all this shit and is being kind of he's being manipulated the entire I get, time. 
I guess what um what you're what you're making clear to me is that at the core, I think the most appealing part of Moon Knight as a character is that whenever you're reading a Moon Knight comic, it's from Moon Knight's perspective, and you know if you saw that same scene from the perspective of another Marvel superhero, it would look completely different. Mm-hmm. And that's like the objective reality of the Marvel Universe, I guess you can call it. And so it would be really fun if with the Disney shows, they did a crossover of like Moon Knight and She-Hulk and Moon Knight and Ms. Marvel, and um, you see the exact same episode on either show, but on the Ms. Marvel episode, is like what really happened, and in the Moon Knight episode, it's like a crazy fantasy. And it's got all these different layers and different genres and... Yeah, exactly, and and he's a he his uh, perception is malleable, so he can like change the tone of the scene, and then you see, just see uh, Oscar Isaac over on the Ms. Marvel show, and they're just having like a regular Ms. Marvel team up. That would be the best way to illustrate what I think is appealing about Moon Knight in the comics. They're not going to do that. No, of course not. They don't it's have just, that that artistic bone in the Disney corporate body. I'm sure there are some people out there who are like more newsy than me and they're or who are more serious with their creative pitches and they're like, oh, I shouldn't put that out there into the world because if somebody hears that, uh, I'm never going to get credit or they're never going to use it. And yeah. I'm just like not that fearful of that. I don't think a lot of creative people are asking me for advice. So I'm going to throw my ideas out because that's what I like to think about as I fall asleep sometimes. And it, and it makes me laugh. I just want before before we start f- truly wrapping up, I want to praise Jordi Belair and Corey Petit for their work on this because we talked oh a lot about God. Lemire and Smallwood and those two absolutely bring it I am I... in awe of the way Belair is able to change the tone of scenes coloring Smallwood's art and Petit just does these really subtle but cool things with the the f- placement of the, the words specifically specifically with Khonshu, especially in the last issue, where he'll like he'll just put it completely borderless, just the words on the page, and they'll contour to the art or the where there's the temple. You've got one sentence in between a pillar and then the next one sloping down. Oh, you're so right. That Beautiful. one was beautiful. That's not even a that's still subtle and it's really impressive. Yeah. I saw I saw that one panel, I'm like, oh that's gorgeous. I started Elias uh, sent me a chart uh, that he uses to keep track of all the comics he reads every year, and I started filling mine out for uh, the month of December going into 2021. Mm -hmm. And one of the features of this chart is that he gives every comic a grade out of 10, and he writes down every creator of the comic. And right now, my highest-scoring creator is Corey Petit uh, from his work on Moon Knight and Immortal Hulk. That guy does uh, is great across the board. He is uh, makes the best compositions with the least flashy letters. He's so good. And There's Jordy a Belair, why he gets a lot of work. I got, I had the pleasure of interviewing Jordy Belair on one occasion. Not only is she a wonderful delight to talk to, but just I had to like fight to stop myself from uh, gushing about how talented she is. Not only at coloring, but also at as a writer, she does it all. Mm-hmm. She's and and she's fantastic on this. I just like I can't believe that she's writing her own comics while doing amazing color work on other people's comics. That just doesn't seem like some one person should have enough time for that. <laughs> yeah, how many books is she doing all at once? Enough. I I don't know the count. Although I would love to look it up by uh, next time we record if I remember. But I I'm sure right now is not the peak, and at the peak it was a great number. Oh yeah, across many different talents. I would cross my wires. Really impressive, and uh, this book, the color is so important to setting the tone of this book, and she and Smallwood are such a good team. Smallwood, I had never been familiar with him consciously before reading this. I'm going to look for him everywhere now. He was fantastic. Yeah, I I can't wait to see his next book. I don't know what book he's currently working on, if he's working on one at the moment. I think he's got a secret project in the works, but anytime Smallwood is on a book, 
you know it's going to be great. Yeah. Um, next month, however, our book club book is going to be a little bit different than this. I don't think we're going to react as a... Re- or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we will be reverent of it. But I think it's going to be more of a fascinating look into Marvel history because it's a book from a previous decade. Yeah. So we are checking out Thunderbolts by Kurt Busiek. Uh, so the volume we're reading specifically is called Thunderbolts Classic Volume 1. That's the trade collection. And I will let Jake handle the breakdown of the issues because it's it's something. Yeah, so we debated this. Uh, this is the beginning of Kurt Busiek's Thunderbolts run. If you guys don't know the Thunderbolts, they were created by Kurt Busiek. So we're going to be looking at their earliest appearance. Um, in this trade collection, Thunderbolts Classic Volume 1, uh, it includes the following issues. It's got Thunderbolts number 1 to 5, uh, simple enough, but also Thunderbolts Distant Rubblings number negative 1. It's also got the 1997 Annual, which I believe is called Thunderbolts Annual number 1997. That's how they did them in those yep. days. Um, and then it's got Incredible Hulk 449, Spider-Man Team-Up number 7, and something called Material from Tales of the Marvel Universe number 1. So if you're a completionist and you're just going to like uh, not be able to listen to the next episode if you haven't read everything that we read, then you should check out that trade. You can get it wherever you get trades. I think it's in print. I, however, don't have that specific trade, but I'm pretty sure I have a bunch of these issues somewhere. So I'm going to go look for them, but I'm positive I don't have, say, Incredible Hulk number 449. So while I will aspire to read everything, that Elias is reading, it's possible that I will not, and if you don't, I don't think it's going to really impact your enjoyment of the episode. That's just stuff to give the Thunderbolts context. Elias, this is your first time exploring uh, the Thunderbolts at all, or just this era? The Thunderbolts at all. Although it should be noted that Incredible Hulk 449 is the origin issue of everything. It comes before Thunderbolts 1-5, through 5, so that might be... One important one to track down on its own. We will find out. I have no idea if Distant Rumblings number negative one matters. <laughs> um, <sighs> yeah, so do your best. If, I will do my best. Or if Incredible yeah. Hulk number 449 matters. Like, really, did we need to read Amazing Fantasy number 15? Not really, but it was good to, to read it. And it was historic. And yeah, yeah. so for completionist reasons, um, those are the issues. If uh, you can't track them down, we will try to make the episode as accessible as possible. And if I haven't read it and Elias manages to, he's going to tell me a bunch of stuff that I'm going to learn. And it's going to be great. And hopefully it won't be like the Young Avengers special. Oh, hopefully not. Um, hopefully it'll be joyous. And I think it will because Kurt Busiek is a lovely man. Yeah. So, Jake, where can we find you on the larger interwebs? Um, if you were uh, interested in uh, Twitter, you could find me on Twitter at rambling underscore moose. And if you just wanted to read my thoughts on comics and TV shows and cartoons and things of that nature, I write articles about that on multiversitycomics.com. And you can find me over at Twitter on... Wait, I think I got my pronouns mixed up. You can find me on Twitter at Quetzal-ish. That's Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. Every letter of those stands for a different Egyptian god, and you can figure out which one it is by reading a Rick Riordan book. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you can also find me writing over at multiversitycomics.com. By the time this episode goes out, Riverdale will have come back, so I will be deep in the throes of it. Who knows what's going to happen in this season? I don't. There are VHS tapes of mystery. And two episodes from now, we will read of justice like lightning, the Thunderbolts. Excelsior.